Hey, I'm Miles. And I'm Alex. And welcome back to AM Productions. Okay, so we have something new for everybody today. We're going to be talking about some March Madness. So we both are pretty big Michigan State basketball fans over here. And Alex and I have been watching for a few years. We're pretty pretty knowledgeable when it comes to basketball, but not as much when it, not as much compared to, you know, us in football. So we're just going to talk a little bit about Michigan State and their March Madness run. And then hopefully off of that, we'll be able to segue into a Final Four preview in our next episode a week from now. So I'm going to get us started with Michigan State's first win in the round of uh, 64, where they won against 10 seed USC. So as a lot of people know, uh, Michigan State has a pretty legendary head coach by the name of Tom Izzo. So he's been coaching for around 20, 20 plus years, and he's been in these March Madness matchups so many times. And he's one of the more experienced coaches in the country and of all time. So when it comes to this game, what was huge for Michigan State was their defense. Izzo really, really coached a massively, massively big effort into putting large amounts of effort on, on the perimeter and forcing USC to take very, very few and very, a very small percentage of uh, three-point shots, which they excelled in. Now, what also was exceptional in this game was two guards, two senior guards, Joey Hauser and Tyson Walker. Although the Spartans were very, very weak when it came to shooting from three, they were able to get by by having strong and productive guards and a strong point guard being A.J. Hogard. Overall, this game was a little bit messy for Michigan State because they did allow USC to get back into the game a few times, but I honestly felt like this was a Tom Izzo masterclass, and the defense of Michigan State stands out, aiding to a convincing 72-62 win. What do you think about this, Alex? Uh, yeah, that was convincing, to say the least. Uh and yeah, specifically the perimeter, def- uh, perimeter defense shined in this game. USC didn't get the shots they wanted to take, and that was largely due to Tom Izzo's scheme that game. It worked really well. And like most Michigan, most Michigan State games, this was a pretty perimeter-dominated game. Uh, got a couple. I believe I believe we 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 had some key rebounds in the interior. But, you know, on the offensive end, we got it done. And on the, uh, and on the defensive end, we got it done. Uh, really locking up those three-point shots, not really giving them a good shot unless it was a mid-range shot. And, you know, we, we took them to those lower percentage shots. So, yeah, I would agree with you on the point that our defense excelled that game. And it was a great game plan by Tom Izzo. All right. Now, the next game after that in the round of 32 was a massive one. Michigan State was up against the number two seed Marquette. A lot of people had Marquette as a dark horse to, to make it to the Final Four or even win this entire tournament. Um, Marquette were the, um, the A-10 champions. They're coming off really, really hot. They have a few all-conference players, and they're coached by a guy named Shaka Smart, who you guys may be familiar with, but he used to coach uh, VCU when they went on a few uh, runs in March Madness a few years back, and he looks a, up a lot to Tom Izzo, and he uh, said it cited that in a few interviews, but... Despite that, Tom Izzo still completely outcoached him in this game. And don't get me wrong, this this Marquette team was very, very strong, well coached, and they had some they had, they had some really good players, and they had a few good moments. But I honestly felt like this was a game again to- dominated by the coaching of Tom Izzo, and just trying trying to overcome the Spartans 
you know, lacking in a few qualities that we don't expect them to do. I think that's a testament to really good coaching. So again, the Spartans struggled to shoot from three point range, but they were able to make up with it, still find their way to the, to the basket. And I feel like keeping that resiliency and being able to keep on, uh, you know, moving through a stretch where the Spartans had shot, you know, three for 20, um, even in the second, even in the second half, I think it's great coaching by Tom Ezra to keep his, uh, you know, keep his players motivated, make sure that they still have confidence to keep on playing. Now, I think the, if you go back and watch this game, the last five minutes are absolutely insane. I mean, that's when both these teams really come alive, and you can see the intensity of this game. You know, it's, it's at the max. It's absolutely incredible. I thought it was one of the best moments of March Madness we've seen. And what comes down to, um, you know, what comes down to an eventual Michigan State win has to be senior guard Tyson Walker. You know, this guy transferred from Northeastern. He spent his time there. He's been at Michigan State for two years now, but he is seriously a crunch time player. He comes up in big moments. He's not afraid to drive. He can shoot a three, take guys on. He might be a little bit undersized, but he has that confidence. And defensively, Maddie Zasoko, a big man, junior from West Africa, absolutely dominant in the paint. He had two key blocks down the stretch. And honestly, it was inspiring to see the seniors play that way. Yeah, that was a really good upstate for Michigan State. Uh, holding uh, Marquette to 60 points. Yeah, and that was Walker's game right there. He was balling on all facets of uh, on all facets you can grade him on. He, he was passing well, he was shooting well, and his takeover during the final stretch of the game was just showed his eliteness. And yeah, just good senior play that game. I believe Walker had 23 points. Uh, that was really good. Uh, Hauser was knocking down some shots. Hoggard was playing well, and as you uh, as you mentioned, some good interior defense towards the end. Overall, just a good upset for Michigan State. And you know, despite only being a three possession game, uh, you could see how well Michigan State played that game, and that was that was a good upset and a key win for Izzo. Yeah. Lastly, was the Sweet Sixteen game against number three Kansas State. So, as we all know, this game was pretty unfortunate for the Spartans. It ended up being a loss and also an opposing player that uh, set the record for NCAA for the NCAA tournament in assist with 19. And I'd be lying, I'd be lying right now if I if I said I was over that loss right now. I think Alex as well would agree with that. We're both uh we're both pretty still pretty pressed about yeah. that game, but um honestly, I still feel like the Spartans played amazing. Again, they've played three games in this tournament where they haven't been favored, but yet they've completely either outplayed or played to the same level of intensity as their opponent. This is a high-scoring game that went into overtime. And this was the game that defense didn't matter as much for Michigan State, rather their offense. They were shooting three points well. I think they were driving to the basket well. They stayed out of foul trouble. Honestly, I'd be happy... I'd be happy just as a Michigan State player and also as as I'm speaking to you right now as a Michigan State fan to overcome so much, have a massive upset against Marquette and still be able to compete with a team that's in the Elite Eight right now. I, I know it's disappointing to to obviously lose in the Sweet 16, but I think Tom Izzo and the players should be happy with this performance. Yeah, disappointing loss, but you know, nonetheless, that was a game we were really not favored. Uh, Kansas State, they're currently in the lead eight. They're playing a game right now. 
Uh, yeah, the record they they set a record for assists with 19 assists uh, in March Madness, and you know that's something you never want to see you go against. But hey, we took them to an overtime loss, and that's pretty good. Making it to the Sweet 16, taking them to an overtime loss, uh, and yeah, it was, that was a more offensive game. Points are really high. I believe Kansas State they almost cracked 100 points, like something in the high 90s. Um, and yeah, disappointing loss nonetheless. Sad for the seniors, but yeah, good game overall against a good competition. We we played to their level, and overall, it was a good March Madness for Michigan State. And that okay. leads us into our next topic, uh, which is free agent running backs, and we're specifically going to analyze Ezekiel Elliott. Uh, Ezekiel Elliott, he was recently cut by the Cowboys. Uh, couple years ago he was signed to a 90 million dollar deal six years uh and his 15 million dollar uh 15 million dollar deal per year and he was just cut recently uh and the year he was signed he he was competing with a running back called tony pollard and tony pollard was playing really well that season uh, it was a controversial decision for jerry jones to end up giving the contract uh and we're really seeing that contract bite them in the butt now they could use that money for different reasons um Ezekiel Elliott, he, he just got cut by them, uh, only serving two years out of the four. Uh, and Tony Pollard, towards the end of the towards the end of Ezekiel's tenure with the Cowboys, Tony Pollard was outplaying him on a lower deal, but he wasn't as big of a name. He wasn't getting the credit he deserved. And now the Cowboys uh, have cut Ezekiel Elliott and. The bigger question that this poses is how does it affect, uh, like, how, how is this an example of the modern running back? You know, we, we hear the running backs getting the headlines every now and then, but, you know, their careers tend to not last that long. Ezekiel Elliott hit a very short prime. And, you know, it's situations where these running backs are still like 27, 28, and they're just getting cut from their teams and their, their time has clearly faded away. So, you know, the, this is more of a question on how does the NFL uh, like how to NFL GMs and how to NFL teams treat the modern running back uh, in general. And right now it seems the approach for a winning team is to just kind of move on from them and replace them through the draft. What do you think, Miles? Yeah. So analyzing the successful teams in the NFL and some of the, uh, you know, some of the least successful teams are teams that are not dependent on their running back play. They're able to build an offense maybe with a good running back in the mix, for example, the Bengals with Joe Mixon, they're able to, you know, benefit off of his play. He's able to be a productive over a thousand yard back. Another good example is the Chargers with Austin Eckler. He was league leader in touchdowns and they were still able to create a passing offense outside of that though. And they weren't completely dependent on the run game. Now, I think the Chiefs are an either farther example of that where they're a team that primarily wants to pass the ball and they have a few decent running backs. But I think the the model is in the NFL right now is to have experience, but also talented running back on your team, but don't get attached to him. Do not be like Jerry Jones and do not pay your running back. Those first, those first four years are the best it's going to be. You're not going to have a lot of these Emmett Smiths, these all time greats that play past their thirties. That's not going to happen in the modern NFL. I think that, the Chiefs are going to be the example that everybody points to. They drafted Clyde Edwards-Hilaire out of LSU in the first round uh, two years ago, 
that was similar to how the Cowboys drafted Ezekiel Elliott in 2016 in the first round. But when rookie rookie running back Isaiah Pacheco, who they drafted in the seventh round, he showed that he was a lot more explosive, a lot more powerful, and a lot more dynamic than than Edward Delaire. They weren't afraid to start him, and they weren't afraid to bench Edward Delaire. You know, this is completely completely contrasting the the way the Cowboys did this because the Cowboys split carry between Pollard and Ezekiel Elliott to justify Elliott's contract. But that's that's one of the worst things they could have done because this is the team if they would have given the ball to Pollard in his prime, they could they could have formed their offense around them and they also could have benefited Dak. I, I honestly I honestly do have to applaud the Chiefs here in this case, but this example just further shows, you know, further shows the the shortcomings of the Cowboys in this situation, offering ninety million dollars to a running back. Now, I do want to emphasize that this way that the Chiefs are building their running back position doesn't have to be as transactional. I think there's a few teams that are doing a good job and doing something a bit different. That would be signing running backs to a one-year deal or a short-term contract after they've played a good season. Now, the Giants did this with Saquon Barkley. They locked him into a one-year franchise tag deal, and they were doing that after Barkley completely reformed himself he stayed healthy and improved his body, but that was only after two years of injury-prone, honestly, awful years. But he was able to reshape himself and get back to the form he was in in his rookie season. That's a good mantra to keep on playing, to keep on paying a running back a one-year deal. It's not expensive. The Raiders just did this with Josh Jacobs on a one-year deal, costing about $8 million. So I think this is going to have to be the model if you want to keep a running back in the modern day NFL is you're going to have to convince them to take less money and really just convince them that they have no security. You know, this is a one year deal. And once it's over, it might be over, but I think that's the only way I foresee any running back still having sustainable careers and long-term deals with teams. Yeah. And if you look at teams who are built for the future, chiefs are a great example of it rather than blowing money on a running back, just going and replacing with a, Seeming with a seemingly more underrated running back through the draft seems to be the new motto for NFL teams. We've seen this in other examples too, like AJ Dillon on the Packers, Jamal Williams. Uh, Jamal Williams was the backup running back to Aaron Jones, and honestly, they were one of the most dangerous one two punches uh, in the 2019 2020 season. Uh, but the to pay to pay Jamal Williams 12 million would have been way too much. Uh, for the Packers to do through for a uh, running back number two and to draft A.J. Dillon instead, uh, a running back who ended up being better than him and a running back who ended up uh, and a running back who ended up, you know, being on a rookie deal and just being the cheaper option just seems to be the uh, just seems to be the move. Also, with Josh Jacobs on the Raiders, tremendous season, tremendous season last season, deciding Raiders once again, deciding to make a smart move by franchise tagging him and just getting another year of the prime before they evaluate uh, on before they evaluate the uh, next season rather than blowing a big money contract and, you know, overall just wasting a lot of money on a running back who's not going to last that long because that is the unfortunate reality of the running back. They take a lot of hits and it's the position in the NFL in which you get damaged the most. And that's why their primes tend to be shorter and NFL teams are catching on to this. And I think this mistake that the Cowboys made with Ezekiel Elliott is going to be one that isn't going to be made by a lot of GMs in the future because it's going to serve as a prime example 
of why running backs are replaceable and running backs aren't the most durable. Agreed. And that's going to segue us into our free agent signings topic. So Alex and I have gotten together four deals that we highlight as um, significant for these teams. And we're just going to highlight those. I'm going to start us out plain and simple with one of my favorite free agency signings. And that would be CJ Gardner Johnson to the Lions with a one-year, $8 million deal. So Gardner Johnson, he's formerly of the Saints and just played his last season with the Eagles. Now he's coming off one of his best seasons he has had. Honestly, up and down time in, in, in uh, New Orleans, but he really refined himself as a player and as a, as a strong safety this season with the Eagles. And he's coming off his best season with six interceptions. Now, I think this is important for the Lions because it's honestly pretty hard to find a, a good safety at such a cheap price. And also a safety that's so young. He's only 25. And Detroit's a defense that honestly was was embarrassing last season. You had an offense that was putting up top five numbers, but their defense couldn't let up less than 25 points. So they couldn't win a game. But hopefully with guys like CJ Garner-Johnson, the Lions are able to improve that back end of that defense. And hopefully there's even better things to come for Garner-Johnson and Detroit. And hopefully the Lions can make a playoff push because of that. Yeah, that's a really good signing by the Lions. Uh, they're getting a safety who just came off of a great season for not that much. Uh, and when you had an appalling defense like last year, that's certainly the moves you need to make to be stepping in the right direction. Uh, for my first key free agent signing, I've yet another safety. And I have Von Bell, former Bengals safety, signing to the Carolina Panthers on a three-year $22 million deal. Um, and Von Bell last year was a strong safety, very good in the run game, very good tackler in general. Uh, he, he was a player who you could really rely on, rely on if, you know, push were to come. Uh, and let's say the offense broke into 15 yards. He's a guy who could tackle him down the stretch uh, and stopped a lot of those short plays uh, or medium plays from becoming big plays. And that's just what you can ask out of a strong safety. Good tackling. He's not a coverage liability. And he was a key piece on the Bengals' defense, leading them to two uh, two big playoff runs. Uh, and for the Panthers to be signing a player like this, if you look at the Panthers' defense last season, it was an okay defense, maybe slightly above average. But the secondary certainly wasn't the thing making them doing that. They, were, they, they had a lot of dogs in the trenches, and they were really good in the trenches. Uh, they, had, they had some good linebackers, and secondary was probably the worst part of their defense last year. So I think the Panthers getting a guy like uh, Von Bell could certainly transform their defense and make them even more of more of run stoppers and also help them in the pass game and just make it harder on NFL quarterbacks and running backs. I think that's a key signing, and I think that's a good signing for Carolina in general. That's going to help them in the rebuilding phase. Yeah, so as you can see, Alex and I really like our defensive backs, but um, I, I'd probably say – if a lot of you are questioning out there why you haven't heard Von Bell's name pop up much or maybe why you didn't see this as a bigger deal is I feel like good safety play is oftentimes overlooked because a lot of times if people aren't calling your name, it probably means you're doing a good job. Safety is that last line of defense and your job is pretty much a lot of times to just have good positioning, be able to block throwing lanes, be able to sit in and be disciplined in a zone. And oftentimes it doesn't always come up as, you know, headline or, as a massive thing unless you're doing something wrong 
Now, Alex did make a good note about being impactful in the run game, which is definitely a strength of his game. But I would probably say that the best thing uh, Bell does as a safety is is just be disciplined. And I think it's what any good safety can do is to pretty much not let anything happen. <laughs> I think it's the best. Okay. So my last one is going to be an offensive player, and I'm going to be talking about Orlando Brown. Orlando Brown signed with the Bengals to a massive four-year, $54 million deal. And I know at the time, a lot of people said that Orlando Brown got massively overpaid with this deal because of the large amounts of guaranteed money. But my thing here is the Bengals know, everybody knows, Joe Burrow is the franchise. So what do you do with the franchise? You got to protect it. You already have your weapons in Jamar Chase and T. Higgins and Joe Mixon. Although two of them might be suspended this year. I'm not cough, cough. But I think that Orlando Brown here is showing up that the second most is the second most, you know, uh, important position on an offense, the left tackle for any right-handed quarterback, you know, that's gonna be the most important position outside of the quarterback. I think this is exactly what you need for the Bengals. It's just somebody who's consistent, somebody who will protect the blind side. As long as Joe Burrow's healthy, the Bengals will be in the playoffs. Yeah, you can you can evaluate Orlando's uh, Orlando Brown's game, and you can be a bit picky. Uh, yeah, sometimes he does need a little help from the guard and a chip. But overall, compared to what the Bengals have, this is just a great move. This is a key upgrade on probably the most important spot for Joe Burrow in this offense, and that is a tackle. Uh, Joe Burrow was the most sacked quarterback last year, uh, and infamously was sacked seven times in the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. And yeah, if when you talk about the Bengals and you talk about the strengths, you talk about Joe Burrow, when you talk about the weaknesses, instantly everybody can recognize their offensive line is pretty weak. Uh, and this is a key upgrade to that position. Um, offensive line is something that NFL t- teams tend to take seriously now when developing their young quarterbacks. Uh, you don't want another case like Andrew Luck where uh, you're superstar NFL quarterback has to leave the league because he gets hit too much and because he wants to he wants to be more safe so you know you got you want to invest in that security guard you got to invest in that tackle and I think that's what the Bengals are doing and it's a step in the right direction and it'll preserve the future of their franchise and Joseph Lee Burrow now that brings me into the last the last free agent discussion for today and that is yet another safety and yet another Bengals safety Jesse Bates the third Jesse Bates III was a, a free safety for the Bengals. Uh, and, you know, you, you, you might hear his name popped up every now and then, but he's just a big play stopper. Last year, he was franchise tagged by the Bengals because the Bengals knew how important he was. They could not let him walk. And, you know, he was, he was offered big, bunny, big money <laughs> by the Atlanta Falcons in a four-year, $64 million contract. So, you know, Bengals chose not to chose not to overpay on that uh, or chose not to pay over that. And Jesse Bates is walking to the Bengals. Jesse Bates was a key free safety uh, and overall another big reason why the Bengals made those late playoff pushes. Uh, Really good at giving help uh, to the defensive back and really good in double teaming, really good at preventing big plays, a solid tackler. Uh, And he is going to a Atlanta side in which already has a decent, uh, already has a decent secondary. And if, if he balls out as much as he did uh, and, and, and even takes another step in Atlanta, this Atlanta secondary with A.J. Terrell and Jesse Bates, 
could be dangerous and this could be a new this could be a new uh blossoming for that defense uh and you know the the they, they get clowned a lot because they don't get a lot of sacks but honestly if they build a good secondary and they choose to draft uh and they choose to draft some good defensive line you know this 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 Atlanta defense can be transformed from one of the worst defenses in the league to one of the best defenses in the league in the matter of a couple years. And this Jesse Bates signing is something that uh, a lot of people can look at. And if that is the, uh, if that is Atlanta's, uh, if that is Atlanta's intentions and, you know, you're getting a baller in Jesse Bates and this is just a great signing uh, and an experienced NFL player. Uh, And yeah, overall a great signing. Uh, in a position they need in safety. And, yeah, this could help transform their secondary and help make them an elite secondary. Yeah, again, I think it's key if you're any team in the NFC South to realize the fact that you have the chance to make a run at the division and make a run in the NFC because the South itself is very, very weak. But on top of that, the NFC the NFC as a whole is lacking a great dominant team outside of the 49ers and outside of the Eagles. So who's it going to be? There has to be at least one team that's going to obviously win to the division from the NFC South. So if you think that you're going to do that as the Panthers, Falcons, Saints, you know, go ahead and do it. And I think this move solidifies that the, that the, you know, the Falcons do realize that. And if they do add a secondary that has AJ Terrell, Jesse Bates, they're, they're pretty locked down. Again, I want to emphasize the fact that although you may not hear about these safeties' names as huge, you know, players, they may not make the Pro Bowl, they may not, you know, they may not show up in the interception stat line, but they are some of the most important players on the field. And one of the more challenging positions on the field is, is safety because of your responsibility in the defense. It's a bit like, I'd say, center back in soccer or perhaps goalie in soccer where you're close to the bottom of the field you're not called upon that much to make a huge play, but when you are, if it is your fault, then everybody's going to be mad at you. It's it's a very, very difficult position to play because one small technical mistake can lead to a goal or a touchdown, whether wherever, you know, whatever it might be. So I think the biggest thing is as Bates attribute, as you listed, Alex, is big plays don't happen when he's on the field. He, he stops that. So, yeah. All right. Well, That'll be the podcast. So a little update in terms of March Madness. Kansas State just fell to Florida Atlantic. So Alex and I are happy. And yeah, thank you guys for listening this far. And we hope everybody has a good weekend. Peace out.